Well, good morning. We're continuing our study now in uh, 1 Corinthians, so come with me to chapter 1, verse, verses 18 to 25 today. Page 924. Our subject today is as important and serious as anything could be. Because we are thinking today about the core message of the Word of God, the gospel, the message of the cross. And so let's jump right into verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of of God. We'll actually spend more time on this verse than really the others that then develop this contrast between those who are perishing and those who are saved. Those are the two categories of the world, those who are perishing and those who are saved. You know, everybody knows that everybody dies. And Everybody wonders at some point in their life, so what's going to happen to me the moment I die? Where will I be? Do I continue? Do I exist? Where will I be? There's a lot of views around the world about that, isn't there? I just want to kind of run through kind of a summary of not with every, what every group believes, but ideas about what happens after death. There are some who believe in oblivion. This is really the, the, the pure atheist would say, we just die and, and cease to exist. We're, we're like the plant that you forget to water. Uh, we're like the, the animal you might be eating for lunch. It's, they're gone. We're gone. Oblivion. There are those who believe in reincarnation. That uh, we die and we come back in some other form until we attain some kind of level. Of course, Hinduism is a, is a classic uh, religion that follows this idea. Eastern mysticism, it's a big, broad category, and I can't say that I even understand what this means, but we die and are, are somehow united with the divine, more of a, the Buddhists and, and Moonies, groups like that. Universalism, uh, there are, are many so-called churches that would say, hey, we die, but everybody goes to heaven. We all, we all get to go to the, to the good place. There are those that believe in annihilationism, which is that uh, it, it, it speaks of Christ, but believers go to heaven, and if you don't believe, you just, then you're going into oblivion, you just cease to exist. Unbelievers are just, they, they don't exist anymore. Probably the most dominant view, if you just would go along the streets of the world, really, is good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. Uh, I, I think if you, in our communities here, let's say that uh, you would, uh, the next big event, downtown Port Washington, a parade or something, if you just went around and interviewed people, and if you said, do you believe there's a heaven and a hell, most people would, I think, say, yeah, I think so. So who goes to heaven? Who goes to hell? Well, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, and there's some kind of an invisible line then that determines that. So, so be good, be nice practice whatever religion, um, do whatever ritual, it all probably helps to get you there. And then there's what we just read. 
the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And the message of the scripture, because there is one God, and this is what he has told us, how eternity works, it all boils down to the event of the cross. Those who trust in Jesus' death on the cross go to heaven, but those who reject Jesus Christ go to hell. And that really is the line between what everybody else says and what God, through his word, has said. So this is, this is the most important and core truth of Scripture. It's a, it's a sobering truth on one hand. It is wonderfully good news. On the other, the wonderful, radical cross. As we look at this uh, first verse then, I'd like to focus first on those who are being saved. So if you took the first line and the last line of that verse, it kind of reads like this, for the message of the cross is to us who are being saved. It's the power of God. The message of the cross to us who are being saved is the power of the cross. So the message of the, of the cross has the power to determine who will be eternally saved and forever in heaven and who will not. That's the power of the cross. That's, that's ultimate, infinite, eternal power. And the death of Jesus Christ is the determining factor. What do you do with that? How do you respond to what Christ did for you? Uh, Paul, in our study uh, last week through verse 17, uh, introduces this section about the cross uh, as he kind of wraps up his, his uh, rebuke, really, of the church in Corinth in that first century, who were being so petty among themselves as Christians as to pick their favorite preacher and, and say, well, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, uh, I'm of Cephas or Peter, you know, I, I'm, I, like, I have my favorites, and even it seems they got into the thing of, it's so important, who baptizes you? And so verse 17, before this passage, Paul says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Gospel is good news. Preach the good news. Not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Why would you, he says, as Christians, be disagreeing about like, who you follow and, and, and who baptized you when in fact we need to focus on the unifying issue of the cross. And to the degree we are distracted about all these other things, we will ignore or diminish the effectiveness of the main thing. And the main thing is the power of the cross. We don't want the cross of Christ to be emptied of its power. Many religions, many, many who are religious that call themselves Christians have also emptied the cross of its power. I have those conversations uh, too often where someone would say, because they grew up maybe in a church with a cross on it or, or something, but they would say, I believe Jesus died for my sins. But if you ask then the question personally, so what are you trusting, on, trusting in to get to heaven? And they answer something to the effect of, well, I'm trying to be a good person. Do you believe Jesus died on the cross? Yeah, I believe Jesus died for my sins. So what are you trusting in to get to heaven? Well, I try to be a good person and I go to church. And there's a complete disconnect between what happened on the cross and what they're trusting in for eternity. 
And so the follow-up question is, so why did Christ have to die? Because if you're trusting in what you do to get you to heaven, you have indeed emptied the cross of Christ, of its power, when in fact the message of the cross to us who are being saved is the power of God. Why did he have to die? That's the important question. See, so Paul in, in the book of 1 Corinthians um, doesn't write as much about what we sometimes call positional doctrine. Uh, it, 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 some books like Ephesians or Romans spend substantial time laying out the basics of the faith from the cross and everything about who we are in Christ. Paul does that in 1 Corinthians as well. You can see it. You can see doctrine throughout the book. But it's a book of practical, pastoral concern about problems in, in Corinth for the most part. But Paul does not neglect to open the book with the core truth. He plants his feet on this doctrine of the cross. Because it is the core doctrine, it is the most important thing we can know about Scripture it's the doctrine of the gospel that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. The cross is central in this passage, chapter 1. In chapter 15, the resurrection will be central. Those two are inseparable. He died for our sins and rose again because his resurrection validates the power of the cross. So when we read cross, you're really reading cross and resurrection the message of the cross to us is being, who are being saved is the power of God. Now let's look at the other, other side of this verse, 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To everyone on, the, on that list we showed above the line, the message of the cross is, is really worthless. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. The word perishing is literally the word for destroyed. Um, it's a word that is, is also used in John 3.16, that whoever believes in him, Christ, will not perish, but have eternal life. So the contrast between perishing and eternal life is a contrast between hell and heaven. So when it says perishing, it is talking about eternal death. Uh, it's a term... Um, in the New Testament, it can be used for perishing of many kinds, but when it talks in these contexts spiritually, it is a spiritual death of being eternally separated from God. In the book of Revelation, John uses the term the second death. In other words, there's this physical death, but there is a second death. That's the eternal death. Four times he talks about the second death. He's talking about the eternal consequences of rejecting the power of the cross of Christ, our only sacrifice for sin. So the reality we have to come to grips with is that hell is real and that everyone is somewhere forever, heaven or hell. The determining factor is what do you do with the cross. But the reality of hell cannot be avoided. In the book of Revelation, Revelation 14.11 describes it as the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. Eternal judgment. Chapter 20, this is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
That's the bad news, but do you see embedded in the bad news the good news? There is a book of life. So the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The good news, the gospel of verse 17 is the, is the power of verse 18 because the cross is how not to perish. The cross is how we can have eternal life. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God, but to the rest of the world that rejects the power of the cross, it is what? It is foolishness. The, 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 the Greek term in the New Testament time for foolishness, I only pronounce it because it's connected to a, an English word, moria. It's where our English word moron comes from. Uh, the word moron actually um, was coined by a psychologist in the early 1900s who was studying those whose minds never really developed and so he, he used this Greek term to describe the feeble-minded. And, and that is how we will be viewed for believing in the cross. That we're kind of crazy. That, that's ridiculous. And we actually say, no, it's, it's radical. But it's true and it's wonderful. To, the, to those who are perishing, it's foolishness to believe that some barbaric execution of a man 2,000 years ago somehow determines where you and I will live forever. Can you see why that sounds crazy? And maybe at one point you thought that yourself. Unless that man was the son of God. Come to earth. Perfect man. Bearing the sins of all mankind. And offered then salvation, eternal life, freely as a gift. So what happened on the cross? How is it that that event determines where someone will be forever? We have to understand that on the cross, Jesus Christ was actually bearing the eternal penalty for our sin. He was our eternal substitute. Paul told Timothy about God our Savior. So, so, so God is not First of all, judge, he is Savior. He desires to save. Who wants all people to be saved. That's his desire. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. There aren't 17 truths. There are, there's the truth. For there is one God, not many. And that one God is holy. And there is one mediator between God who is holy and man. And who is that mediator? The man, mediator, the man Christ Jesus, who was God and man. And on the cross, what did he do? He gave himself as a ransom for all. It's powerful, isn't it? To realize who Christ is determines what he could do, why the cross has the power, and why you have a decision to make whether you will put your trust in Christ or not. He was the one who was bearing the penalty for our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, So God, that's the Father, made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, the Son. He made Jesus to be sin for us or in our place so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This transaction is the greatest transaction in the world that God would like scoop up all the sin of all people of all time and place it on the only sacrifice that could pay that sin. It was his son. It was Jesus Christ. And all that sin judicially, legally, spiritually, eternally was placed upon Jesus. And then God in his perfect holiness poured out all his wrath 
upon Jesus. And Jesus died saying, it is finished. I've completely, sufficiently paid for the sin of all mankind. God made him. So all of our sin was put on him. And if you put your faith in Christ, all the righteousness of Christ is put on your account. That's the second half of this verse. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God because the only way you can be in heaven someday is to be perfectly righteous as God is righteous. And it will never be yours righteousness or my righteousness. It will be the righteousness of Christ. Let's never rob the cross of its power. Or Peter said simply, he, bore, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So we have to understand the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came and he was our substitute. He died for us. That's the power of God. The world said that's ridiculous. We say no, that's the best news ever. Wonderfully, radically good news. So do you see that all religions of the world are not equal and all the religions of the world are not good? The religion is not good if it tells you to try hard to get to heaven by being good, but it's not true. That's not a good religion. If your ship is sinking and you send someone out on a so-called life raft that you know is full of holes, that's not good. You have, you have doomed them to perish. The truth about God's plan to save the world is, the only, is only through the cross. So the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And now the rest of these verses, 19 through 25, uh, really go through to explain why the cross is so non-negotiable, why every other view is wrong if it doesn't fit with what the one God has done for us and revealed to us. Verse 19, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom, so-called, of the world? Um, I'm sorry, verse 19 first. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. First of all, God's, um, this is a quote from God in Isaiah 29, 14, where God is responding to the, the so-called smart people of Israel who were uh, calling foolish what God's prophets said. And God comes along and says, uh, you can't do that. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. They will be regarded as wise. They may be the elite in, in the Jewish culture, Isaiah 29. But I'm going to destroy their wisdom with what? With truth. And that's what God's going to do with those who call the cross foolish. I'll destroy it. Interestingly, in verse 19, the word destroy that he quotes from the Old Testament is the same term as, it's part of the same term as the word perishing. I will cause to perish. Uh, so not only will the people who believe wrong perish, but their ideas will perish. Their ideas have an expiration date. The people who reject Christ will perish with their ideas. The falsehoods are all going down. There's an expiration date on false ideas. In heaven or hell, there is no debate about the power of the cross. Death ends all debate, all discussion. So 
People may say, well, this just doesn't seem to make sense. It's not rational. Or, or I know someone who's so brilliant, and he's, he's put this all together. He's kind of my, my personal philosophical guru. Or someone may say, it's because you know, this religion of the world has millions of followers. How can you say that they're all wrong? Well, I didn't say it, but the Scripture says that the message of the cross is foolishness to them, but it's the power of God to those who believe. If they don't have a cross, it's not true. Now verse 20, where is the wise man, where is the scholar, where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? So all the smart people with all their ideas, uh, Paul asks like three hypothetical questions. Where are they? They're going to be proven false. The wise man, first of all, it's a term for like the Greek elite educators and philosophers. Where are they? The second term is about Jews, the scholar, or most, most Bibles have the word scribe, maybe it's a little better, because it's describing the, the Jewish experts in the law. They knew the Old Testament rules so well, and they banked everything on keeping those Old Testament rules that they could not even understand when Christ came. They would not accept or embrace that. In fact, you may remember when Paul, we were talking a couple of weeks ago, when Paul came to Corinth the first time, he began to teach this truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Jewish synagogue where they already had the foundation of the Old Testament and they for the most part rejected it and he took off his garment and he shook it out and said I'm not dealing with you religious people anymore I'm going to the non-religious the Gentiles and there were some Jews who came to faith in Christ including the ruler Crispus but where are the scribes who are so brilliant in their understanding of the Old Testament they aren't agreeing with the cross so where is the, the third one is the philosopher, the word is debater. That's what they do. They like to argue and, 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 and that kind of thing. But where are they? they? Death ends their debate. It is so easy to be so intimidated by our culture and its ideas. But have you noticed through the decades, if you've been an adult for several decades, how the ideas of the world keep changing. And so we see these, these, these movements and, and of, of, of what is true and, 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 and about God or about good and things that, they were, that, that most people believe 50 years ago is different than today. And there's a change in what is moral or immoral sexually. There's a, there's a change even in, in what they believe about genders. Who would ever would have thought that there'd be a confusion about that? And so you see these, that the world is continually changing its views. And the preaching of the cross never changes because it's part of the Word of God because none of the Word of God will change. It is always true. When, when Paul was writing this to Corinth, there weren't maybe the list of ideas that we started out with, but he knew the list of their ideas. He was very aware of his culture and, and the ideas of his time. So he comes to Corinth, a big metropolitan city. And as he's preaching the gospel, he knows what the other people are believing, the philosophers. That's what he's referring to. And in fact, as he's talking to the, as he came to Corinth, it's probably five years before he wrote this. As he came to Corinth uh, those years before and preached the gospel, those adults who came and put their, foot, came and put their, their faith in Jesus Christ, they had to give up all those false ideas. Whatever they grew up with, here they were now, 20, 30, 40, years, 50 years old, or whatever it was, and they put aside those false ideas to believe in Christ. And Paul is reminding them of that foundational truth. I think what Paul has in mind is we've got to keep this foundation because 
all the Christians in Corinth now are having children who are going to need to hear the same truth. You see, the Corinthian church, like all of the churches that Paul planted, are basically all first-generation Christians. We use that term sometimes. If your parents were not believers in Christ, then you are a first-generation Christian. And I know it's been, been a, a, really a blessing to see so many first-generation Christians who are able to, to, to put aside what they might have heard or learned before. But see, now you're concerned for the second generation and the third generation, right? And so many of you will be second and third generation Christians as well. And we like to assume as parents that, that what we teach our children about Jesus Christ and the cross is something they're going to uh, believe and embrace as well. And so we, we, we try to be very intentional as a church and as a family. You hopefully send your children to our, our, our Sunday school or kids build where they can hear the same truths that we're talking about here and to the youth groups on, on Wednesday night so that they will know other adults who also teach the same things that mom and dad are teaching. And they will know Christian friends who also believe the same things. This is, this, is, this is how we seek to guide that next generation. But everybody realizes that each child is going to come to a place in their life where they have to decide also themselves whether they will put their faith in the power of the cross or not. Because every child is going to grow up and have access to things that are not true. And, 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 and Christian schools and Christian colleges are, are, are great. But even if you go to Christian schools and Christian colleges... We all have a device that has every false idea available to you 24-7 at a moment's notice, right? So this understanding of the cross has to be something that is taught and, and retaught, and, and we have to be, reconvince ourselves, right? We have to keep going back to the Word ourselves. That's why we need to be in the Word of God. And I would urge you, especially if you are younger, you're going to hear all kinds of brilliant ideas. You're going to see it. You're going to read it. You're going to hear it. And it's going to be different than mom and dad and different than what you heard at Open Door Bible Church. And you are going to have to decide. And that's why you're going to need to stay in the Word of God as a young person. And as you grow, you're going to have to keep being in the Word of God to understand the truth. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, and there's one way to heaven. You will learn many good things from unbelievers that you need to know for whatever skills and, and whatever uh, direction you're going to go in life as an engineer or in medicine or whatever you're going to be doing. But you're going to have to discern between what the Word of God teaches and what you're hearing when it comes to the issues of, of, of uh, ethics and morals and, most importantly, salvation truth. Because God's in the process, second part of verse 20, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Because everything false will one day be exposed as foolish. Since in the wisdom of God, verse 21, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. There's an amazing way how, how Paul keeps using the word foolish kind of in two different ways. And you've got to kind of pay attention to see when he puts it in, in quotes. So he's saying... What the world calls foolish, he kind of embraces that term and says God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached. In other words, the simplicity of the truth. That's how he saves those who believe, those who put their faith in it. But in the wisdom of God, the world in its wisdom did not know him. God knew that most would reject him, but it didn't alter God's plan. 
God didn't, God didn't look, at, look around at all the smart people of his world and say, well, you know, I need to make this sound a little bit more intelligent or intellectual. Or I need to alter it a little bit to fit the culture. Or I need to uh, include some of man's ideas just to kind of, it's a little bit easier to swallow. He never did any of that. He kept it to the wonderfully, radically simple gospel that God so loved the world so much that he sent the one and only sacrifice for their sin that whoever believes in that would have eternal life. So what they call foolish, second part of verse 21, is exactly God's plan. It's the only way to be saved. And we find then at the end of verse uh, 21, the key word of the New Testament for how you and I must respond to that which God has fully done. The cross has the power to save. But this message needs to be preached to save those who believe. Believe. So God has done everything necessary through Jesus Christ, sending him to the cross. God has done everything necessary to pay for our sins. All the sin was put upon Jesus He died and paid for our sins, and he rose again. He did everything necessary. The the resurrection of Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, proved it all got accomplished. But does that mean that everybody goes to heaven? Does not. He saves, verse 21, those who believe. So what does it mean to believe? The word believe is not simply believing a set of facts. To believe in Christ means to put your trust in Christ, that he died for your sins and rose again. It's not what you know, it's what you're trusting in. I've often illustrated that with a chair. You can look at a chair and say, I know it's gonna, it could hold me up, but it's not holding you up until you sit down on the chair and now you're trusting in it. So the question is, what are you, what are you trusting in for eternal life? That's the issue because it says, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe, those who trust in what he did for them. So there's about a hundred verses in the New Testament that use that term believe, or the noun version of it is faith, to express what you must do to respond to what he has done. There's about a hundred verses. I'm going to share about 11 passages here just to, to read through to understand the crucial nature of what you need to do to respond to have eternal life. John 3.16, where we mentioned before, for God so loved the world, that's you and me, that he gave his one and only son, that's the cross, that whoever believes in him, what Jesus did, whoever believes in him shall not perish hell, but have eternal life in heaven. Complete, beautiful, simple. A little later in the same chapter, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. They remain under judgment They're one of those views above the dotted line that we looked at. So he wrote, that's from John. Now Luke, who wrote Acts, tells the story of how the church developed, and and we find this then being the pattern. You must believe in Christ. Acts 10.43, all the prophets testify about him, Jesus, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. You can't go to heaven with sin. Your sin needs to be forgiven. When you put your faith in Christ, your sin is forgiven. That clears the way between you and God. If you believe in him. Acts 16, 31, Paul talking to that jailer in Philippi. 
They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from perishing in hell. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Or when Paul came to Corinth, the book that we're studying, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. So believe in is the message of Luke. And then, of course, we see it in Paul. In Romans, first of all, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. This good news is the power of God to save for the salvation of everyone who believes. Not everyone. Everyone who believes. Romans 3.22, the righteousness from God. That's what you need to get to heaven. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and justified means like verse, the previous verse, to be made righteous. Therefore, since we have been justified, how? Through faith, faith in Christ. Now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way is through the cross. That's the power of the cross. Paul wrote it not just to the Romans, but to everyone he talked to, Galatians. Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, Message to the Jews. They were trying to attain righteousness by their own efforts, keeping all the rules of the Old Testament. You're not justified by that, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Or Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace, meaning you don't deserve it. By grace you have been saved from hell, from perishing. How? Through faith. He's just spoken of Jesus Christ. For that, this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works. So no one is boasting, no one is bragging, no one in heaven says, I got there because I deserve to be there. It's by grace through faith, if you've put your faith in Christ. Or Philippians, Paul said, to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own. Never get there by being good enough yourself. Not by not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, again, keeping those rules, he tells the Jews, but that which is through faith in Christ. We are saved from sin's penalty by faith in or believing in Christ and Christ alone. That's 11 passages. Uh, at the back table today, I've got a six-page document. If you want to pick up a copy, you can. Of I think I have 68 passages that includes these. But just to immerse yourself in the reality that we are saved by faith in Christ alone. It's amazing how many people have Bibles, say they believe the Bible, and maybe attend a church even with, with a cross on it. But if you ask them, what are they trusting in? What are they believing in for eternal life? They'll still point to themselves and not to the cross. But the message of the cross is, has the power to save. In verse 21, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached. The simplicity of this message to save those and only those who believe. This is our main job, is to communicate this. This, this, is, this is what we do. This is why our church exists. It's because we live in a world that believes the cross is foolishness, and we need to become the demonstrations of the reality, the sobering, yet wonderfully good news of the cross. But it brings up a very important question for each of us individually. 
What are you trusting in to get to heaven personally? What are you trusting in? It's an, it's an individual decision that you need to make. And if you're here this morning and you are unsure of where you would be if you were to die tonight, today is the day to make sure of that based on the reality, the truth of the Word of God. So whether you're here in the room, whether you're online, or you could be, you could be watching this two years or ten years from now, and it would still be true. This is an unchanging truth, the message of the cross, that Jesus died and he paid for all of your sin. And only if you put your trust in Jesus who died for your sin and rose again will you be in heaven when you die. And so uh, just in these moments, if you would just search your own hearts to know, have you put your faith in Christ? I'd like to share what we, we call the three circles. But the question is, what are you trusting in? For eternal life. And let's review what it says in Ephesians. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. That's a step. That's a decision you make within your own heart by faith. And it's not from yourselves. It is the gift. So hard for proud people to, proud adults to accept a free gift, right? But until you understand that salvation is a gift, you never have salvation. That it's not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one's boasting about it. No one's bragging, I got to heaven because I, I, I deserve to be here. So the three circles, C, W, and C plus W, represent, first of all, Christ, that he died for my sins and rose again. What are you, I'm asking you to pick a circle. What are you trusting in to get, get to heaven? Is it Christ, that he died for your sins and rose again, or is it W, works? You're trying to be a good person, do good works, baptism, church, kindness, whatever. Or would you say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for both. Christ plus good works. Surely it can't hurt. Oh, yes, it does. You can't have a foot on the pier and on the boat. So, what does the passage say? We're saved by faith, and that's referring to Christ, and not by works. And if it's not by works, it's not by works at all. So are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone? And so if through these passages of the Word of God and through what God is speaking to you in your heart, you've never understood that, you might want to express that to Him right now in the quietness of your heart. It's a decision you make. And you can express it to God, whether it's audible or not. Um, but you are making a decision. You are, your mind is processing the truth that Jesus paid for your sins and rose again. And will you resist that as foolishness? Or you, in humility, will you embrace that and say, yes, I'm putting my trust in Christ and Christ alone. And so it's a decision you make as if you were crossing a bridge. If there's a walking bridge over a raging river, you have to decide, will I get on the bridge and trust it to get me to the other side? And so the bridge represents Christ, that he died for your sins and rose again. Have you made the decision to put your faith in Christ alone, because then you become a child of God, your sins are forgiven, you have eternal life, and you have peace with God forever, and that is God's promise to you. The world thinks it's crazy. The message of the cross like that is foolish, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So if in your own heart you have embraced that truth just now, please contact us. We'd like to help you grow in that, or if there's something you still don't understand, we'd love to uh, be of help to you. Paul goes on in verses 
22 to 25 then to describe for his audience the groups of people that have been resisting that truth, the Jews and the non-Jews. Verse 22, Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, period, or colon in this case, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, is a sentence which he says, okay, so we, on the one hand, we have, we have Jewish people over here, and they, they, have, they have immersed themselves. They know the Old Testament law, and they're trying to find a righteousness by keeping the law. And they've heard about the Messiah, but they were thinking about, we need a Messiah who's going to get us out of our trouble with Rome. Rome is dominating us, ruling over us. We hate it. We need a political Messiah. They wanted a miracle. They wanted a, they wanted a Messiah. They wanted Jesus just to, just to keep, to like make, make the Romans evaporate or something. And No, he had, he's one day going to rule the world. Have no question about it. But first he came to save the world through the power of the cross. Offer salvation to us. The Jews wanted a sign. The Greeks are looking for that wisdom. They want to they have it fit their philosophical system so it makes sense to them. But we preach Christ crucified, and that's a stumbling block. It actually does make perfect sense. It's not like we're, we're preaching an irrational gospel because the reality is there is one God. He is completely holy, and there is every human being who has sin. And so there's a problem between God who is holy and man who is sinful. And so God sent the one mediator, Jesus Christ, who is the one who paid the penalty for our sin. And then he says, if you put your faith in him, you can have eternal life. It, it is perfectly logical, theological, and it is true. No matter what people say in terms of it being foolish. But we preach Christ crucified. That's a stumbling block to the Jews. The word stumbling block, some of you have the word, I think, offense. The cross was the most repulsive form of execution. It was the most humiliating process to hang naked on a cross, bearing the punishment for your own sin. And what we, we think of the cross, and it, it has great acceptance. We, we have a cross on the building, we have a cross here. I love the symbol of the cross. You may have cross jewelry, there's cross tattoos, or whatever. It's a very acceptable symbol. But to recapture how it felt then, it'd be as if we, we had a an image of an electric chair hanging on the wall. Because this, is, this was the most torturous form of capital punishment. And the Jews were saying, That's what my salvation is in someone who died a criminal's death. Likewise, it seemed foolish to the Gentiles. How, how can death bring life? Oh, only if the death is the death of God's eternal Son who bore up sin and rose again. Then he does. But to those who God called, both Jews and Greeks, it's the wisdom and power of God. So, so God calls. There's this process by which God works in your heart to call you. And you realize this is the truth. He calls and then we respond by faith. And so that's why you must trust in Christ and Christ alone. For the foolishness of God, verse 25. The foolishness of God, that's a strange phrase, right? Put it in quotes. 
This simple message that people call foolish, the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness, quote-unquote, the so-called weakness that, that, that our Savior would subject himself to a humiliating criminal's death, this so-called weakness is actually stronger than man's strength because it has the power to save. It's wonderful, it's radical, it's true. Verse 18 concludes like it begins. It's, it, it, it wraps it up. Let's read verse 18 again. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you, first of all, for your amazing, wonderful plan of salvation. That through your crucifixion, as the eternal, perfect Son of God, yet fully man, you were able to bear the full penalty of our sin and the sins of the whole world. And then you satisfied the Father's holy wrath on sin all on that day. And then you rose again, stamping the receipt for our sin payment paid in full. We thank you that you accomplished that and then you turn around and having paid it yourself, you offer it to us as a gift and only as a gift. I pray for any who have not yet put their faith in you and you alone to receive that gift that they would clarify it in their mind that what may have seemed foolish or overly simple will be con uh, they become convinced in their hearts and in their minds from your word, not mine, that it is true. And if they would put their faith in you, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.